Well, good morning. I know it's that time of year when people are looking for a church home, and I just want you to know very clearly that God wants you to flourish in your faith. I'm certain of that, and I'm glad that you're here looking to a place, to find a place for that to happen. And uh, I hope that if the Lord leads you here, that you find this to be a safe place. And as you heard from the testimonies, uh, we are a people who are living daily in a certain dependence upon the Lord, and we are encouraging each other in that process. And so God wants you to flourish in your faith, which doesn't mean that it'll be easy, (laughs) but it does mean that it will be secure. Because you are held tightly in his hands, strengthened by his grace. And so we uh, hope that if this is where the Lord is leading you, that you find this a place to plug in and and get to know people. But if it's not, don't give up. There are some great churches in our community, people who love the Lord all throughout this great city. And so stay the course. Um, Be in a place where you can grow in your faith and If this is where it is, we welcome you. We embrace the opportunity to uh, share life together with you. So um, if you do, uh, if you are new, please come to that newcomer's lunch. Uh, I get to see you briefly, uh, maybe on a Sunday morning, but I'd love to just sit down and have some time with you, hear your story, tell you my story, and just uh, spend time together. So please uh, mark your calendars for that. And this morning, we're going to finish up our series, our summer series on uh, powerful prayers in the Bible. And, and we hope that you found this study to be both challenging but also encouraging. Next week, we're going to jump back into our study of Hebrews, and we've got some exciting things in store for you there. But uh, we hope that this uh, study this summer has been practical, you know, just something that you can live out and use in your, your everyday life. But more importantly, uh, we want this to be, uh, become an increasing priority in your life. We, we want to be a people who are known by uh, being dependent upon the Lord in prayer. You've heard me say before, I'll say it again, I believe prayer is a posture of dependence. It's a reminder how much we need Him. And so we hope that this is a priority for you. And, and uh, in fact, after the service this morning, we're going to put that priority into practice. Um, so if you would like someone to pray with you, pray for you, uh, if I've asked the elders and the pastoral staff just to remain, their wives uh, are available too, just to be in prayer with you. And listen, not because there's anything special or unique about our prayers, okay? It's because we love you. And we want to come alongside you and go to the throne of grace with confidence together. So if that would be meaningful to you, um, I just wanted you to know that's something that we're going to do. We don't do this normally, uh, but we felt like after the series on a prayer, it would be nice to not just walk away, but actually spend some time applying it. So we would encourage you to, to remain. But before we pray for one another, I want us to take some time uh, to look at the prayer that Jesus prayed for us. It's really a fitting close to our series because when you look at the testimony of Scripture, that prayer that Jesus prayed took place at the close of his earthly ministry. It happened just moments before his betrayal and subsequent arrest. Jesus was alone with his disciples Uh, giving some of the most intimate details of things that were yet to come, speaking very candidly about his death and burial and resurrection. So this prayer represents what is, is most pressing on our Savior's heart for those who have chosen to follow him. 
We'll see as we walk through this together that Jesus prays for the completion of his mission. Jesus prays for the ministry of the apostles. And then Jesus prays for us, for you and I, those who have put their faith and trust in Christ and have chosen to follow him. So I tell you that because I want this to be very personal. I want you to know that as Jesus prayed this prayer that he had you and I in mind. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you in prayer, we want to be humble. We want to be open to how you revealed your heart and your prayer for us. Lord, give us eyes to see the ways that you spoke to the Father. The way that you related to him in a way that you desire for us to relate to you. Help us to to learn from what you communicated and what you believe to be true about him, about you, about us. And I just pray that it becomes very real to us in this moment this morning. This would be more than something that we're studying, but it'd be something that we're experiencing together as we hear the words of our Savior spoken on behalf of us. Make it personal, Lord. As we look at your word, we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so if you would, turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, we'll begin reading in uh, verse 1. We'd love for you to follow along. John chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things and lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all who have, you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which, which I had with you before the world was. Now, as you read through this prayer, you're going to notice kind of a, a circular pattern that, that, that goes throughout this prayer. And to be honest with you, it's kind of difficult for me because I'm a linear thinker, right? A plus B equals C, but that's not what this prayer is about. Instead, it's, it's circular as Jesus continually kind of reinforces what he's said in previous statements. And, and he talks about how all these things are interrelated and, and interdependent on each other. We see that in verse, four, verse 1 as he begins when he prays for God the Father to give glory to God the Son. So that in turn the Son may glorify the Father. And then later on in his prayer, Jesus talks about the, the glory that the Father has given to him that he then now gives to us so that we can give glory to him. So, so you can kind of see the, the circular pattern of repeating and reinforcing how all these things are interdependent on each other. In my mind, it's like viewing the, the brilliance of a multifaceted diamond. So that as you look at what it means to have a life-giving relationship with God from, from every possible angle, you can't help but see another reflection of beauty. In fact, if you look close enough to the heart of Jesus, you're going to see a reflection of yourself in him. I hope you see that as we walk through this together. 
Because at the heart of Jesus' mission is you. It's you and I. He came that we may have eternal life. And he says in verse 3, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the one true God. Not, not one of many. Not, not, not just an option here and there. But the one true God. The one and only. That they may know you. And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So, so our salvation is through a life-giving relationship with God. But that relationship with the only true God, is not possible apart from the work of Jesus Christ. Our sin is a barrier to our salvation. And in our passage this morning, we're, we're going to see here that, that Jesus has not yet accomplished all that God has sent him to do. Now, he said he's been faithful with everything that, that God has given him to accomplish up to this point. But there's still work to be done, which is why he is going before the Lord in prayer. You see, only then will Jesus return to the glory from which he had been sent. See, John highlights this original glory right at the beginning of his gospel. John 1, 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word. Now later we'll see that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we know the Word that he's referring to is Jesus Christ. So if we were to replace that, we would say, in the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. This is the glory that he had from before the world began. Existing within the undivided fellowship of the Trinity. But we also know that Jesus willingly relinquished his divine rights in order to take on human flesh. We see that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, where it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, that's the completion of his mission, the cross. Our eternal life depends on his sacrificial death. We are separated from God because we are dead in our trespasses and sins and we are powerless to break free. So Jesus came to take our sins upon himself, bearing the punishment that we deserve, dying in our place, rescuing us so that we could be set free. We have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption through the forgiveness of sins. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. See, knowing the cross, the very heart of the mission of Jesus was just hours away. Jesus prays for the completion of his mission to bring glory by God, to God by revealing the hope of our salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus prayed this prayer, he had you and I in mind. 
Let's look at how he continues in verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. And you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that, so that the scripture would be fulfilled." So Jesus began his prayer by praying for the completion of his mission, and then he continues the prayer by praying for the ministry of his apostles. These are the men that God had given him, those who were divinely appointed disciples, who were eyewitnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and their testimony would become the foundation upon which the church, including this church, would be built. We know that because of Ephesians 2.19, which says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built, here it is, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Jesus is praying for the apostles that they would guard the treasure of his truth. Words which he received from the Father, then he delivered to his disciples, and they received them in faith, believing that Jesus was the promised Messiah. You may remember that famous question that Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter boldly answers him, and he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the son of the living God. So Jesus, knowing his mission would be complete, and that he would return to the glory from which he had been sent, he now prays for the apostles who will be left behind. Jesus would no longer be in the world, but they would, and this world is not their home, and it's not ours either. That's because the, the world is hostile to the hope of the gospel, and here's why. At least one of the reasons, in my opinion, probably the biggest obstacle, the hope of the gospel is built on the integrity of the reality of judgment. And nobody likes to talk about judgment. And yet the apostles must declare the truth of the judgment just as boldly as the hope of salvation. Otherwise, the hope of salvation is not all that hopeful. We don't understand our desperate need of a Savior until we understand the magnitude of our sin and its consequences. And so we can see in Acts chapter 16, verse 10, Paul boldly proclaims, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere, so no exceptions, everyone should repent. Because he has fixed a day 
when he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, speaking of Jesus, who he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Our judgment before God is ultimately based on our opinion of who Jesus Christ is. Is he who he said he was? Or do we believe it's something different? The Bible is very clear that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Peter says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that there is salvation in no one else. That there is no other name under heaven given unto men by which we can be saved. There's only one true God. And there's only one true Messiah through whom we must be saved. So you could probably understand why the world would be hostile to this message. Because the world would rather be like God instead of submitting to God. To, to judge for themselves what is, what is right and what is wrong. It's where truth is relative. You do you. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. The world thinks the message of the gospel needs to be more inclusive, where there are more ways to get to heaven than just one. But that's not the truth of the gospel. So Jesus prays for the protection of his, his apostles who will boldly proclaim this truth. He prays the, for their unity as a validation of their message because we know these were different men from, from different backgrounds, all with unique personalities, but they were telling one single story about one single person with no contradiction among them. A story that once revealed brings joy to the heart of those who receive it. We see that in John chapter 17, verse 13. So continue where it says, But now, Jesus continuing his prayer, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the, word, the world has hated them. Because they're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, also have I sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus is praying for the joy, the joy set before him to, to be just as real in the hearts and lives of his apostles. A joy not based on circumstances that surround them, because as he says in verse 14, they will live in a world that hates them, that will be hostile to their message. And so this is a joy that is protected by the truth of God. It is guarded by the word of God, so that not even the evil one can take that joy away. It's an enduring joy based on the hope of eternal life and guarded by the unshakable promises of God. Jesus sent his apostles into the world to proclaim this truth. And he's praying them for them to, to faithfully carry out God's will, being transformed by that truth that they are proclaiming, seeing God's power at work even within their imperfections. 
He goes on in verse 20 and he says this. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. So that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them. And will make it known. So that the love with which you love me. May be in them. And I in them. Jesus begins by praying for the completion of his mission. He then goes on to pray for the ministry of his apostles. And then he turns his heart towards you and I. And he prays for us. Those who believe through the testimony of the apostles. And he begins with a really astounding request for unity. And he repeats it several times to say the same thing in different ways. But in verse 21, he says, May they be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. So we need to think about this. It's a repeated phrase. It's a repeated idea that he's saying. So what exactly does he mean here? Is he talking about this idea of peaceful, com- uh, peaceful uh, cooperation where the church or the evidence of unity is based on the absence of, of disagreement or offense? Like the perfect unity of the Trinity, are we to live with conflict-free fellowship? Is that what he's talking about here? I don't think so at all. In fact, in the disciples' prayer, which we looked at, when Jesus was teaching his disciples in verse 12, he said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Because he's knowing that as Christians, we will inevitably hurt other people. And that other people will hurt us. So Jesus is not praying for conflict-free community. In fact, I would go as far as to say that a commitment to reconciliation in the midst of our conflict is what puts the gospel on display. We are ministers of reconciliation. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. We've said this before, forgiven people are forgiving people. As we re-gift God's grace given to us and to the lives of those around us. So the the unity that he's referring to here must go beyond just simple relational harmony. And I think we can see what he intends here because of the common thread that's all throughout this prayer. We see it when Jesus prays for the completion of his mission. We see it when he prays for the unity of the ministry of his apostles. And when you see it, when he prays for, for you and I, because I want you to notice there at the end of verse 21, what does it say? Jesus prays for us to be one so the world might believe in him. We pray for unity for the sake of the gospel. 
There may be all kinds of nuances in our theological opinions, but when it comes to the person and work of Jesus Christ, there is no division. We are one in that truth. Paul says that to the Philippians when he writes to them, and he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. You see, that's the unity that Jesus is praying for. Because the effectiveness of the mission is built on the unity of the message. Do you see that? It originates with God. His words were given to Jesus, and Jesus gave those words to us. So instead of fulfilling our own selfish desires, we are driven by a desire to follow God's will. You see, this really, when we talk about this kind of unity, has less to do with getting along and more to do with going and making disciples. Living in a way that puts the gospel on display with lives that are centered on fulfilling God's purpose. Again, instead of fulfilling our own selfish desires, we are faithfully living out God's purpose and God's will for our lives. Yes, we, we live in a fallen world. There's no denying that. But we serve a faithful God who sent his son to be a sacrifice for our sin. And that's the story that we tell. He has died for our sin and he has risen from the grave. That is the hope of our salvation. And Jesus speaks to that. In verse 24, he says, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see the glory which you have given me. See, don't miss this. Okay, This is at the heart of Jesus' prayer. The very central piece of his desire is that you may be where he is. That's why he came. That's what the gospel is all about. And that's what he's telling us as he prays on our behalf, that they may be where I am. That was central to his mission. It was the heart of the apostles' message. And in this morning, it's proclaimed to you and I. You are at the heart of Jesus' prayer. Because in the end, he wants you to be where he is. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Like I said at the beginning, if you look closely at the heart of God, you're going to see your own reflection, because you were at the heart of his mission. And my hope would be that that alone, that truth in and of itself, would be motivation to live a life devoted to him. To fulfill the purpose for which you have been called. But we also know that God is gracious. He understands that we are weak and frail. So he calls us to prayer, which is what we've been looking at all summer long. He, he allows us to come to the throne of grace with confidence. To find strength in his presence. And so as I said, this morning we're going to close in worship. And then I'm going to invite you to come and spend some time in prayer. If that's something that you would desire to do. After the song's finished, everybody will be dismissed. So you're free to leave when that song is finished. But if there are things that are heavy on your heart, we would just encourage you to come and let somebody pray with you. Or you can grab somebody around you and pray with them. But consider taking some time to do that before you leave. Because here's the reality. 
One of the privileges I have as a pastor is the opportunity to spend time with many of you. And I know for a fact that there are people in this room this morning who on a daily basis go into a job where they are being persecuted because of their faith in Jesus Christ by those who are in authority over them. And we want to take some time to pray for you. I know for a fact that there are people in this room this morning who are struggling in their marriages and they're hanging on by a thread. I know for a fact there are people who are broken because their kids have gone wayward and it breaks their hearts as parents and we want to pray for you. I know there are people who are here this morning who are living in unrepentant sin, fulfilling selfish desires instead of walking in faithful obedience, and they know it. I know there are people who are here this morning who have heard the gospel in a way that has penetrated their heart to show the deep and desperate need they have for a Savior. And we want to pray for you. So as we spend some time in song, I want to ask you to consider just staying for some time of prayer. Either come forward or spend time with those around you. Before we do that, let me close our time in prayer. Father, thank you for the privilege of seeing your heart laid out in your prayer. And it's, it's so clear, Lord, that at the heart of your prayer was us. You were praying for us. You were praying for those, the apostles who would go before us and, and lay the testimony of the foundation of which all of our faith is built. Father, you came because you wanted us to be with you where you are. And that was only possible because of the cross. That was your mission, to die for our sins so that we could live eternally in your presence, to be with you where you are. Lord, thank you for revealing your heart in such a beautiful and encouraging way. But Lord, we also know that we live in a sin-cursed world. You said it would be hostile. You said we would be hated. And we are experiencing many of those realities in our own lives. And so we need you. And, and prayer is a posture of dependence. It's, it's a statement that says, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. And so as we close our time this morning in prayer together, we come before you with the assurance of the security that we have in knowing you and being known by you. May it be rich and meaningful as we approach the throne of grace with confidence. We pray this in your name. If you need to leave, we would ask you to do so just quietly, respectfully. But we would invite you to stay and spend some time in prayer together as a church family. If you want to come forward and have somebody pray with you, please do so. And know that it's a safe place. Feel free to grab those around you. If you want to just gather in little huddles and pray together, whatever uh, is most important to you. But uh, we're going to take some time to do that as we close this morning.